tell them this morning's scripture reading is going to be from the book of Genesis in chapter 3. You can find that on page 2. We're at the very beginning of the Bible. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate then. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, and he said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of your... In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Uh, We're in a series called Seasons. We're taking a month to consider the wise counsel and hope that God offers for various seasons of life. Last week, it was I'm a parent. 
And the whole worship service was really centered around parents and kids and how to glorify God in the midst of that. We had a child dedication for seven sets of parents. We had special music for them. We had special prayers for the dedication and a sermon as well. So I really wanted to kind of just duplicate that sense this week for this season we're considering, which is I'm married and it's messy. So I asked people who are dating in our church and uh, even people who I thought might just be kind of compatible if they consider getting married this morning. Right here in front of us. And it turns out that's, uh, that kind of request is not only creepy, but also kind of controlling of a pastor. People take that the wrong way. Like, are you serious? Like, what should, should I make arrangements? Also, I found out that uh, most ladies don't want to share this special day with six other brides. So, we are not marrying seven couples this morning. Uh, I'm sorry to put that to you if you were hoping for that. But we'll attempt to instead grasp and apply this chapter in the Bible that one scholar actually said the most depressing chapter in the Bible. It makes you want to give up. Dot, dot, dot. So that's what we're going to look at for marriage this morning. No, no actual wedding ceremonies. Instead, the most depressing chapter in the Bible that makes you want to give up. We um, really know how to work it. So, Genesis 3, though, not only provides us with an origin of Satan, evil, sin, but it does so in the context of a marriage relationship. So, you may have heard this story before. You may have thought about, man, this really stinks. And it really stinks for me because I see the effect of it in my own life. But we don't necessarily always consider the origin of Satan's sin, evil, from the perspective of marriage. This should also increase our confidence in Scripture. Talking about marriage from Genesis 3, because God's grand story is always reflective of our smaller story. And by the way, that's a great way to read the Bible. When you're in the Bible and you're in a place in Scripture and you're just trying to get your head around it and try to think, man, how does this apply to my life? Ask, what's God doing in His bigger story here? And how does that connect with my story? It always will in some way. Whether it's how God has created you, whether it's uh, idolatry or sin that you're struggling with, whether it's a a little glimpse of the redemption we have in Christ, whether it's our future to come, there's always our story, our smaller story, as part of God's grand story. And we see this here as well. So in Genesis 2, we see the wonder at the gift of marriage, which hopefully all of us have experienced, and the vulnerability of marriage, and the mess we make towards God and our spouse, and our sophisticated attempts at cleaning up our marriage. And finally, after all has failed, God brings hope. It's great. At the end of Genesis 3, you think you're left for dead. But we get this little glimmer of hope, which I'm excited to to share with you this morning, and I hope that it gives you encouragement for your marriage. We're going to spend the main time with those last three before getting into the meat of the message. So I just want to look briefly in Genesis 2 at the first two kind of snapshots we see of marriage. Both then but also for marriage now. So first we see the wonder at the gift of marriage, which for us involves fluttering feelings, right? Joyful anticipation of seeing the person that day, whether you have a lunch appointment with them or seeing them around the corner. Then the wooing takes place, right? Where you do things and say things that you hope to be. (laughs) You go above and beyond and you do things you never thought you could do to win that person. Then you have the engagement and finally the ceremony. 
we wonder at the gift of marriage and for Adam and involved having to first watch animals come up in pairs as he named them, two by two. He had to start to wonder, okay, two, 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 two donkeys, two cheetahs. And he's thinking to himself, well, wait a minute. And in that moment, we hear God say that he wants to make a helper fit for him. So after forming her, God, her father, leads her in procession. And it really is like a wedding procession to Adam. Adam is so full of joy that he busts out rhyme spontaneously. The first time we see this, poetry, music, spontaneous rhyme, and all of history. So you see in chapter 2, verse 23. It's this wonder, this joy at the gift of marriage. And we're reminded here that marriage is a gift, not a right. I hope this encourages those of you who maybe have longed for marriage or you still wish to get married, but you're not. You may have even thought to yourself, what, what is it? What is it about me? Or, or what, what, is, what is wrong with me? Or, or what is so right with other people that I'm so wrong and it's just not working? Marriage is a gift. And that reminds us that it's not about being right or wrong, more right or more wrong. It's just right for this person in this season. Just as next week we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible considers a season or a life of singleness in and of itself a gift to people. And I realize this being married 13 years. Like there, there, there are times, I know I love being married. I, I hope this is not taken the wrong way. But there are things even in ministry like you think to yourself, man, if I, well, if I wasn't married, I could do that, right? I could have time for this. I could invest over here. It can be a, a great gift for the right person at the right time. And so I want to remind you of places like Matthew 7, 11, Luke eleven thirteen, where Jesus says we have a Father who knows how to give good gifts. Not that just that He gives them. He knows how to give them. In other words, you can trust He knows which gifts to give to, to which kids at the right time in life. We don't get too far in this story about the first marriage without seeing the vulnerability of marriage, do we? For us, that might be the moment alone after the ceremony. Especially early on, you, you, the first year, you think about every problem that goes wrong. Will this be my life? Will this be what I have to look forward to forever? And certainly, I know for Katie and I, we felt it acutely. The vulnerability of marriage for the first five years of our being married. We've been married 13 years. Strongly. Our, our first five years of our marriage, I told most of you openly, Hades. I'm telling you, it was difficult. Just difficult. We felt all the time like attack, attack, attack. Both from Satan and each other. And God worked and He's done a lot of healing through that. But we still feel vulnerable. So in verse 14, we see that for man, it's leaving his family, the only family he's ever known, to be with his wife. And for her, it's leaving behind her dad as the main man of her life. The main man of her life. The only one she's ever known with her husband. You're vulnerable. Verse, 20, verse 25 is then ominous. Look at that. Chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. Don't you feel like something's going to happen? Now? Like somebody, you're going to open the door and all of a sudden, dun, dun, dun. And that's true. We see in Genesis 3. We have the benefit of looking back through Scripture, the benefit of years to recognize, oh, oh, this marriage is vulnerable like all marriages. It's reminded me of a story this week which I think illustrates the vulnerability of marriage beautifully, both then and now, which July 21st, 1861, first major battle of the American Civil War. Confederate and Union armies clashed by the stream called Bull Run. And a strange thing happened at this first great battle of the Civil War. Hundreds of Washingtonians 
gathered together in le- their leisure clothes, taking picnic baskets, saying things like, come on, Muffy, let's go together, that sort of thing. And it, they went up this hill to Manassas, nearby Manassas, to watch the battle, the first great battle. Opera glasses were utilized by one northerner as he was overheard saying, uh, splendid, the northern army was winning, the, the Union army. Splendid, we will overrun Richmond, their capital, by tomorrow. It was a lovely setting surrounded by war. Suddenly, there was a rebel Confederate counterattack, which put the Union flank to flee, to run away and retreat. And everyone sort of recognized on the picnic grounds that their lovely setting was about to become a war zone. So spectators fled everywhere, every direction. Just the moments before, a cavalry just trampled. Boom, 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 picnic baskets, glass shattered. Romantic afternoon ruined. When two sinners get married, war is always near. There's no magical protection from it. Picnics are all only temporary in this life. So from Genesis 3, we'll connect God's grand story of this first war among spouses with our marital one. So verses 1-6, through six, we're going to see our mess. Verses 7-13, through 13, our attempts at cleanup. Verses 14-24, through 24, a little bit of hope. God lessens messes and He crushes their cause. Which is good news. So first, our mess we see here in verses 1-6. through six. It begins with Satan tempting us through our fallen nature, which we inherited as we see here in chapter 3. It's, did God really say that? that? That question we get in our mind that we think we might be speaking to ourselves, but is really a satanic temptation. Did God really say that? Did He actually say that we can't party hard if it's with our spouse? Or we can't watch pornography together? Did God really say that? I mean, isn't, isn't that okay? And then we see Matthew 5, verse 28. Right? Even to, to lust after another woman is to commit adultery, to sin. Did he actually say, like, it's, it's our job to disciple our kids? Won't God just kind of take care of them? We just leave them be and send them to kids to church every week or put them in a Christian school? Did God actually say it's our job? Well, we see Deuteronomy 6, like we saw last week. Did he actually say to love my spouse like Jesus loves the church? I mean, that's not really fair, right? Because Jesus was God. How can I do that? As we rationalize this, we can then read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, 23, 24. Did he actually say, I, I can't have really close female friends still, even though I'm married, or other close male friends that I spend time with, even go out to lunch with, maybe an occasional dinner, even though I'm married? Then we see Ephesians 5, verse 3, to have no hint of sexual immorality among us as Christians. So all these questions that kind of creep into our head, the first mess in marriage is a failure to trust in God's goodness. first mess in marriage is a failure to trust in God's goodness. The Father knows best. He will really give what He commands. If He asks you to do something, He will give you the strength the wisdom, the power, the people, the resources, and the grace to do it. Augustine once famously prayed, God, command what you will, but give what you command. That's what God does. 
For me, Thursday was a travel day, um, but also a sermon prep day for me. So I was kind of going through the airports and just getting my head down, working on the sermon. And in the afternoon, late afternoon, I got off the plane, and Katie and I uh, were going to meet together with some attorneys, all right, uh, because, thankfully, not the kind of attorneys you might think of in a marriage sermon, <laughs> we're going to buy a home, which is amazing. Uh, God has just been really good to us in this divine conspiracy, He's worked circumstances for us to purchase a home because he seems to have called us here to came in for long term, and we love being here. And so we met with these attorneys, and after the meeting was done, I was like thinking to myself, you know, I really should get back to work. I need to get work on the sermon again. I want to make sure I get that done, even though I hadn't really spent time with my family in three or four days because I've been on the road. And I had that moment of, did God actually say, Ryan? And it came in the form of, did God really say, seek my kingdom, seek my righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you? Did God really say, if you seek my kingdom priorities, loving your family, spending time with them first, then I'll provide? And I had that moment of like, oh, I, I, I'm preparing a sermon on this. I'm, I'm reading Genesis 3. Did God actually say? And he helped me in that moment that, you know what? God gives what He commands. He will provide. And I step out here and trust in His goodness. But the mess I really want us to hone in on here, the second mess, it is buried and nearly hidden in verse 6. Look at that with me if you would. Chapter 3, verse 6. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, there was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that knowledge of good and evil, intimate knowledge. She took of its fruit and ate. Now look at this little detail. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So if you've read this scene before, and imagine in your mind, I appreciate Joe Balmer coming out here virtually acting out the scene, which was, which was awesome. It's very appropriate, because we think about this scene in our mind. How did it go down? We often miss the fact that Adam was basically sitting like this. I imagine just his elbow against another tree branch, like so, and just watching this unfold. This temptation going on before him. Paradise ruined. His wife going downhill. Tempted to turn away from God's goodness. And he failed to speak up and help. And so often do we in marriage. In fact, sometimes it's the biggest key in marriage. is isn't the initial failure of one spouse to trust God's goodness. It's the failure of the other spouse not to step in and help that spouse. To help them through it. That's what marriage is for. To be helpers. Genesis 2.18 talks about a spouse being a help to assist, to support the other person, to bring maximum glory and honor to God. We are there to help the other person, to be there, to speak up when the other person is so tempted and so weighed down or so entrenched in idolatry that they can't do anything about it. That's what a helper is for. And that's why we read later in uh, verse 17, note the man is cursed, verse 17, quote, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you didn't speak up for yourself, that you didn't say something, that he didn't stand up for her and for the goodness of God. What does this look like for us? It means speaking up when our spouse is struggling with doubt and temptation. So for instance, uh, raise your hand if your spouse has ever asked you to attend a marriage seminar, read a biblical book on marriage, like the Marriage Builder. We have it in the back. It's a great book. Or meet with Pastor Ryan because I do marital counseling or another counselor. Raise your hand. Your spouse asks you marriage seminar, book, 
counseling. Raise your hand. It's okay. I'm raising my hand twice, three times. Not that hard. Now, keep your hand raised. Raise your hand again. It's okay because I have to. Keep your hand raised if you immediately supported their idea. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's talk later. I want to make sure I want to confirm that. Uh, Many of us, especially many dudes, I'll be honest, are silent at that moment. Our spouse, spouse asks, you know, I really feel like we need, to, we need some help here. We need to read a good book, even if it's just to tune up our marriage. Even if it's to keep it healthy. We need to maybe go to this you know, marriage getaway through, through Family Life Ministries or something like that. We need to maybe sit down with Pastor Ryan who does this sometimes or, or another you know, professional counselor and really work on things. My, my finding is Pastoral ministry has been oftentimes it's the guy who says, you know what, let's, let's really think about it. The cost, could have cost a lot. We had this, or we're just hoping it goes away. But that's the moment that we need to stand up, to speak up, to support, to help. And that's what that can look like in our lives. It's just to say, yes, I want to do whatever it takes to support you, to help you when you feel like you're struggling. Secondly, it means helping sacrificially. You can be present with someone and not be present sacrificially. Right? So be there for the person without the phone or the laptop. Right? It, means, it means following up with the person. Once you've had that hard conversation, do the hard work of sacrificing, asking them about it again. How are you still feeling about that? How are we doing in terms of taking practical steps towards growing closer together, towards peacemaking since we last talked about it? These are the ways you sacrifice as well, it also means abiding in Christ through the practice of rhythms, spiritual rhythms in your life. To let your spouse kind of catch you praying prior to breakfast. Heading out the door to pray with other godly folks who may be keeping you accountable. Reading your Bible. Practicing that memory verse before you go to bed at night. You're kind of brushing your teeth. Practicing this that can encourage your spouse. Help them see that this can get better. Those are the ways we can be there. I want to encourage you, speak up, help, when there's moments of doubt and temptation for your spouse. Secondly here, we see our attempts at cleanup. We see it in Adam and Eve's case. We see it in our story as well, verses 7 through 13. We see the covering up of my shame. We see hiding from God. We see blaming others. So every human relationship is covered here. Our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to God, and other people. Because sin spreads everywhere through our lives and through our marriages. And we see that reflected here in the biblical account, don't we? First we see, look at verse 7, as we're going to look at covering up my shame. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves little. Imagine this moment. They're so ashamed. They've got to pull leaves off branches, kind of half put them together, and they're all the while trying to cover themselves. Noticing, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not the way I was supposed to be. I feel insecure about myself. In verse 11, God sort of exposes his birth. He says, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of that tree? He knew it right away. That shame can only be because you stopped trusting my goodness towards you. Covering up my shame is one of the ways we kind of scramble and try to clean up with our own resources, our marriage. 
Sin has been exposed in your life, makes you feel red, embarrassed, makes you feel inferior before your spouse. So our attempt at cleanup is to exhaust ourselves with, with self-improvement. But now I've got to get better. Here's what I'm going to do. Here are the steps I'm going to take. Here are the books I'm going to read. Here are the people I'm going to listen to. Here are the meetings I'm going to hold. Here's the charity I'm going to do. We make up for our shame by throwing our attention on, onto others or into our work. Right? So we, want, we, we make every effort to help others, to make us feel better, or into our work so we can just forget about the shame we feel when we're with our spouse. And I think shame is the silent killer to marriages. Everyone's going to sin in marriage. Everyone's gonna, but the shame, holding on to that is a silent killer because the spouse often doesn't know that's going on in the other spouse until it's too late, until something really bad happens. But as we'll see, acceptance is available in Christ for the most immature transgression that you're almost embarrassed to admit, to the grossest sin that you're absolutely ashamed to admit. We also see here in the big story, but also in our story, hiding from God in fear. Verses 8 through 10, let's read that. They heard the sound of the Lord and the, uh, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was his practice, by the way, to walk with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He said, of course he knew where he was, right? But this is God's way of saying, hey, let me see what you say for yourself. God is very wise that way. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we hide from God in fear. And we've drifted from God slowly. We've enjoyed sort of indulging in idolatry. We don't want to deal with God through our marriage. We just don't want to deal with it. So how might you know that you're hiding from God in your marriage? Probably because you find yourself resistant to or exhausted by anything serious with your spouse. So when they bring up something like, hey, we need to really talk about something. I'm worried about what's going on. You find yourself consistently like, ah, can we just do I'm, I'm really exhausted by work really tired, can we just watch our favorite show or go out together? I, can we just deal with it later? And you always find yourself putting it off, procrastinating. You're resistant to even the thought of getting into that. Why? Because we know if you get into that, it's going to be painful. Because it has to do with your sin. It has to do with what you worship before you worship the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and to get into that is like surgery. It's hard, it's painful, it's messy, it's bloody. It's a warning sign. Your roommates, all of a sudden. You ever felt that before? Maybe you're feeling it now. There's a remedy to come, I promise you. But thirdly here, we first need to talk about blaming others. We see that here in God's big story, as well as ours. Verses 11 through 13. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Remember that helper? The one that you said was going to be so good to have on my side. Yeah, that woman, so I'm kind of blaming you too, she gave me the fruit to eat, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, oh, remember that animal you let come into the garden, the serpent? Why would you even let him in here? Problem of evil and suffering. Let's really talk about this God. He deceived me, and I ate. So really, again, it's half the animal's fault, your fault. The man's like, her fault, your fault. This happens in marriage. <laughs> Blame others. Katie needed my help when she went into labor with our first child, Mason. She was, we rushed her to the hospital. Didn't go too fast. 
went along there in the Silver Fox. That's what I call my Subaru Forester. It's a beautiful thing. Went along together, and I had everything ready. I had one bag of the clothing. Everyone talks about it. I also had my bag full of my laptop, camera, cords to connect, and the instructions on internet connection at the hospital. Because uh, at this point, prior to the quick iPhone usage, which you can delete later, the embarrassing photos and footage you should never have taken in the delivery room. Back then, you had to tape the whole dang thing, right? And then hope later that no one sees it too quickly before you edit it on some complicated machinery. That's what life used to be, and that's how old we are, how old our kids are. So I'll just throw that out there. After Katie settled in, and at least had the decency to help her settle in, I went directly to the side table to set up my little multimedia room, Get it together, laptop up, fire it up, get the cords going in. I had some confused. I, had, I even asked one of the nurses a question about, do you know anything about this over here? What the, what's the internet thing i got to do again? There's a password to type in. All the while, instead of holding her hand, instead of reminding her of God's promises, praying for her silently and out loud, I'm ready, trying to get ready to show all our friends in the world, behold, Mason. <laughs> and it hurt her feelings. It hurt her feelings to the point where during delivery, she gradually preferred having her mom, my mother-in-law, in there with her to me. And man, that was embarrassing. I was, I was humbled. I had to go outside. I had to watch sports on a, on a TV at one point, which made me feel even worse. I'm like, I like this, but I feel so guilty. Why am I? And what I should have done... What I should have done is quickly confess to her and to God that, man, you know, Katie, I failed to speak up and help you in a time of need. I'm sorry. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Purify us completely. What did I do instead? Uh, I blamed my mother-in-law. First, I blamed her, her in my heart. Then I, I blamed her before God. And then before Katie. Of course, after my mother-in-law left. Right? I'm, not, I'm not stupid. But, but I waited. This is what happens when we fail and we try with our own resources to clean up our marriage. It just, it just gets you into further trouble. It's a further spiral. Fear, shame, and blame. Good news, though, guys. It's the third point here. We see it in God's story. God lessens messes and He crushes their cause. Verses 24 through, sorry, verse 14 through 24. First of all, God lessens messes. The good news, guys, is that He has not, God has not left this world. Or He's not left this good institution of husband and wife just because we rebelled. Messes don't necessarily damn us. We see this, ironically, in all the curses. First, the curse of the serpent. Notice that in verse 14. Enmity, in other words, hatred, kept us from being Satan worshipers. You may have never read that verse that way. But after Adam and Eve choose to, you know, choose Satan's way, choose to rebel against God, they choose Satan's way, it would have been easy for them to say, well, you know what, we've made our bed, we've chosen our God, it's not the one who created the heavens and the earth, let's just follow this one. He seems smart, he seems wise, he's got good advice, he gives us things for marriage, let's follow him. But God put enmity so, for instance, how many of you here have ever been Satan worshipers? I hope you, it's okay if you have. I mean, I just, how many of you have even known someone who, who is a blatant Satan worshiper? 
So none of us. It's a strong percentage. Why? Because God didn't leave us. He kept in between us and the prince of darkness. And it's why people don't often rush to follow Satan. It's still why Satan is at least an evil and bad figure to put into movies and into our stories that we tell in the world we live in. He protected us from that. He also allows love to exist between spouses. Not quite flourish, but at least to exist. In his heart and before God, he blames Eve for his downfall. Right? Everything is directed to... She's the reason this is wrong. She's the reason the curse is on us. She's the reason. And yet, he softened enough to say in verse 20, the man called his wife Eve. Which basically meant she's the mother of the living. In other words, God still cares so much for marriages. He allows husbands and wives, whether they know Jesus, know God or not, to still be generous with their words. Love still exists in marriage, even though we've rebelled. Thirdly, God doesn't love rebellion prevent Him from expressing tangible love. Look how gracious verse 21 is. Incredible, merciful. Adam and Eve said, we don't want anything to do with you, God. We want our way, not your way. The one thing you ask us to do, we're going to do. And even after they've fallen, even after God says you have to leave, look what He does for them. Just, it's, a, it's a little simple detail, but so caring. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and He clothed them. Even in their rebellion, He closed them. I love you. I know this has created a a barrier between us, but I still love you. I still want to care for you. I still have a plan for you. Which we see next. God, curses have a good purpose. They remind us that something is wrong, and so they spur us on to seek help. Right? It's a good thing they leave the garden, by the way, right? It's a good thing that angels stand before the garden because now they're in a cursed state. And by leaving the garden, it's a reminder that guess what? You're not, you, we, I don't want you to live cursed forever. I don't want you to live frustrated by work forever. I want you to live in the pain of childbirth and child rearing forever. There will be an end to this. So husbands recognize they both love work, but they're frustrated trying to find work too. And then the, the, the frustration of trying to do work with the balance of family responsibilities. And we know something's wrong with this picture. It's not supposed to be like this. I hope it's not like this forever. And so wives experience pain. All the pain that surrounds having or even not having children, which is part of the woman's curse. God has a purpose in all of this. He knows that husbands and wives will seek to try to find satisfaction in families and children or in work and the purpose they're in but they'll find frustration in both. And so hopefully, hopefully they'll seek help elsewhere. Not in themselves and not even in the spouse, but in a third party. And that's where the Gospel comes in and Jesus comes in. God crushes the cause of marital messes. Look at verse 15 with me. It's the first time we hear the Gospel preached and it's here in Genesis chapter 3. I'll be enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring, her offspring. <clears throat> one of your offspring, Eve, one person who's going to be born in your line will bruise the serpent's head. Serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. At first glance, it seems like God is just talking about snakes and human beings, right? Never liked each other. We don't like snakes when we see them. Snakes don't like us. They hiss. They try to strike where? Around our feet, generally. Hopefully nowhere else, because that's when it goes up quickly. 
right? The poison. <clears throat> what do we try to do? We try to ask somebody else to kill a snake. <laughs> it's not usually us. It's like, would you kill them? Would you kill that for me? And, you know, you see stomping. But we recall that the serpent is in a tactically weaker situation. That's purposeful, right? He can go for the heel, but the man can crush his head. And so this is a curse that is fulfilled ages later through the offspring of Eve, through a man named Jesus. He's tempted by Satan. Satan strikes his greatest blow by getting Jesus sentenced to death, thinking that I have killed the Son of God. I have killed God's chance to redeem this world. Yet the very plan God uses to crush Satan's work is the crucifixion of Christ. Is Him dying the death we deserve so that we can live with Him forever. And it's also the redemption of our marriages. Hebrews 2.14 basically summarizes this directly. Hebrews 2.14, just listen to this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, basically, parentheses here, lived the life that we couldn't, so that by His death, Jesus might crush Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He might crush him. He might bruise him. That is the good news, the gospel, for all marriages. Can consider what Jesus' death and resurrection can do for a marriage, if you would with me, real quick. The frustration, but also the evil in marriage can be turned into good because God turned the vilest evil of Satan turned to good. The evil we experience in marriage can be turned to good. Luke 22, verse 3, Satan entered into Judas. Then God turned it around through the cross and resurrection. We can invite God back into the garden of our marriage to walk amongst us because of what Jesus did for us. Being bruised so we would not be bruised forever, so we would not be crushed forever. We can invite God back to walk amongst our marriage. Jesus tabernacles amongst us through the Holy Spirit. We can forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ. We have that amazing resource. And we can accept our spouse as they are, not as they should be. Because God in Christ accepts us as we are, not as we should be. Amazing. Went to a pastor's conference this last week. That's where I was traveling. Books were everywhere. Which for a preacher is like a kid in a candy shop. Books, books. Whoa, awesome. Love these books. I'm just a big nerd at heart. And one book I was looking at, it's this one right here. I was thumbing through it. I had four different women come up to me. Two of them saying, like, you have to read this book. You have to read Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. The next two women came up and, and didn't say anything to me, but looked at the book I had in my hand and just grabbed each other's shoulders and jumped up and down. They were so excited. Like, oh my gosh, there's stories in book form. I've heard it before. I saw it on this website. This is amazing. Did nothing to me. They just did this right next to me. I realized, man, I should probably buy this book. <laughs> like, this is one of the best testimonies I've ever seen. Physical joy just by holding a book. I'm going to buy it. The book is called 828, based on Romans 828. God works all things, even evil things, for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. It's about Ian and Larissa Murphy. Ian was in a car accident, had severe brain damage, and he'll never be the same. Unlike other stories of love and acceptance and marriage, Larissa, though, and Ian were not already married. She was keeping a journal a journal she designed to give him when he asked her to marry him. She was keeping that journal when he had the accident. And though Ian was no longer as he should be, 
She initiated acceptance of him by proposing they get married. She invited him into a relationship to be fully accepted by a sinful but fully functioning person. Guys, each of us is damaged beyond repair. God knows this ahead of time, so he initiated a plan for you to be fully accepted as a bride to a bridegroom. I pray that such undeserved, patient, unworldly acceptance by Jesus fuels our marriages to make us more like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we have, those of us who are married, made a mess out of our marriages at different times and different ways. We don't deserve the gift we have in our spouse, and we certainly don't deserve to have you walk amongst us. For those of us who don't have you as the third party, the divine third party in our marriage, I pray today that we would trust you, Jesus, that we would invite you, God, to walk in the garden of our marriage again, to walk amongst us once more through Jesus Christ, that we would just even now, in the silence of our hearts, take a moment to ask you back into our marriage through Christ. We also remember, Jesus, your acceptance towards us, your love towards us, your forgiveness towards us, your plan despite the fact that we really messed it up, that you could still work good out of it all, and you want to be part of this marriage of ours. We pray today that the victory of Jesus stomping out evil and the promise of that being gone forever would fuel our marriages forever. In Jesus' name, amen.